Welcome to the Vertical Software Podcast. I'm your host, Sudan Siva, the head of corporate development of Vogue Software Group, where we buy and hold vertical market software companies across the world. In this podcast, we'll introduce you to owners and operators who run a vertical software business, talk about their story, how they view the market, and the trends that they see. Stay tuned for our next guest on the Vertical Software Podcast. All right. Hey, everyone. Really excited to have Pankaj Malvia, who is a serial entrepreneur, having started and exited two software companies and is currently running a third business called Pulpstream. I feel pretty fortunate to have him join on. I think there's a ton that he can share, having operated, run, and grown multiple software businesses in almost different eras over the past several years. And so, very fortunate to have him on and, and you know, would love to, you know, share his story. So welcome, Pakaj. Why don't you start off by just giving a high-level overview about your background? Well, uh, so Tin, first of all, thank you very much for this opportunity to be part of your uh, podcast series. By way of my background, I am a computer engineer, graduated uh, from uh, a GS Institute of Technology and Science, Indore, a city in a central state of India. So I graduated in computer science uh, in 1991. And uh, I started my career from Indian Oil Corporation, which is one of the uh, largest petroleum company in India and a Fortune 500 company as a computer engineer. And it is very interesting that I joined a company which uh, where software is not part of a profit and loss center. It is a cost center. So during my internship there, I happened to have uh, have a meeting with the managing director, uh, which is like a CEO. And I asked him a, a question, which is, can a software engineer ever become a CEO of Indian Oil Corporation? And he said, no, that's not going to be possible because uh, they probably wouldn't have operational expertise. Uh, that is needed to run a large company that has refinery and distribution operation. And uh, that was the a kind of, I just started my career and I realized, geez, this is not the place for me. Why? Because somehow I had this fascination with whole title or you would say, or you would say that the desire that I, I want to reach the pinnacle. I, if I am part of a company I cannot be just in the middle or at the bottom somewhere. I need to just go to the top. And that was uh, kind of an opening, eye-opening for me. I said, no, okay, thanks. And uh, I stayed with the company for three years, moved on to Citibank, and then became part of HP. And when I landed in US in 1998, that's when I was introduced to this fascinating world of startups, the world where you can create something from nothing. And if you have grit and perseverance, you can basically just shine and, uh, and create something very big. And I've seen Yahoo and uh, Netscape, those were the companies at that time. And that kind of just uh, seeded that entrepreneur uh, thing that was inside me, but that uh, I think came out when I landed in US or in Silicon Valley. So very fortunate how with the turn of events and uh, happy to share that story today with you. 
Awesome. And, and you know, I, I think there's a lot of different points that we can touch on throughout your story, but I'm really interested in understanding how did you manage to start three different businesses? I think, you know, starting one business is hard enough, being able to run it, sell it, and kind of move on. Normally that, that in and of itself is an accomplishment that is often a lifetime achievement for most individuals, for you to kind of go through that process again and again, having started it now, it's your third business. Tell me more about the differences in starting, growing, and operating, and even exiting a business in these different eras of software. I think, you know, you started on, like you said, kind of in the Yahoo Netscape phase where the internet was just starting out. Uh, software businesses were just starting to uh, emerge and, you know, really kind of understand what kind of potential they could have on the world. And then, you know, you went on to start a platform uh, software business, more of an infrastructure business, which I'm sure you'll get into. Also very timely and very much, you know, something that was necessary uh, just given the way the world was going and, you know, relying on the internet. And then now here you are today, again, running a company uh, on another emerging trend, which I'm very excited about, um, specifically the no-code movement. How do you compare and contrast? Like, tell me what were the opportunities or challenges that you've seen kind of change over time? Um, before I answer that question, I think I would love to answer the first part of it, that how did you manage to do three? With one, okay, I did it. Now I'm going to do something else or retire or whatever it is. I think if you are an, an entrepreneur, you typically live by one thing, which is never stop dreaming. Even when you are on an idea which is already running, you would not stop dreaming. You would, that, that desire to keep on creating something and try to see if there is an opportunity for me to succeed. And it's not for money. I think that is just a secondary aspect of being an entrepreneur. The first and foremost is being able to dream about something then turn that into a reality and then turn that into something that gives satisfaction to you because your customers are happy because somebody in real world is able to make use of it. And when that happens, that gives that ultimate satisfaction. So monetary part, I would say they are in so many ways secondary in nature because if that was the driving force, I might have stopped after the round one. I, after my first startup was successful, I would have been taking a vacation home and maybe doing something else with my life. So never stop dreaming is really what I went by. That's number one. All the three companies that got started and first one was relationals, second one was long jump, and third is, which is I'm currently running Pulsestream, they were started in three different times, piggybacking on three different trends of those times. So as an entrepreneur, one of the most important, important thing is to recognize what is the current trend? What is it that I can jump on and ride that out? So in early 2002, when I started uh, Relations, the trend was software as a service. That changed the game that something that I had to produce and someone has to install and then I have to go through that upgrade cycle. The cost for an entrepreneur 
before software as a service movement uh, came was really high. That how can you afford something uh, to get into that upgrade cycle and be able to provide that? Software as a service and starting from really salesforce.com changed that game. So Mark Benioff and salesforce.com success was really uh, my motivator that if they can do it, why can't I? So they were doing CRM for everybody. And I created a company that was focusing on CRM just for media industry. At one point of time, we were serving 150 newspapers across US. And these are top notch, number one newspaper, USA Today and several other companies. They were using our platform. So I jumped on that trend. Then in 2008, the second trend came. And that trend was companies started to realize that if we can provide software as a service, why can't we provide platform as a service? Now, this time, we and salesforce.com were just one month behind, which is they launched on 6th of September their platform and we launched on 27th of September our platform. And both the companies were riding the trend of platform as a service, allowed the developers to do more than simply using uh, software, but allowed them to de develop their own software now using a platform, which is entirely web-based. That trend moved on from software as a service to platform as a service, which involved part coding, part visual de development, to no code movement. And that happened in 2014 or 13. That's around the time when Forrester and Gartner really started to talk about the, this era where companies are providing a platform where almost no coding is needed. So if you see the common thread across all these three different times, which is identify, what are the trends? Execute on them like a true entrepreneur, like a dreamer, like with grit and perseverance, and then create a winning scenario, both for you as well as for your customers. Got it. That, that's very helpful. To build on that, a common element that I saw between all three businesses is the fact that it's bootstrapped. You didn't take venture funding. You didn't take on at least publicly, to my knowledge, a lot of debt. Um, you really built it from ground up. What was the thinking there and how did you go about those trade-offs between you know, taking on venture or perhaps growth capital or any other kind of financing versus just using your existing cash flows to build the business? It is indeed a common element. Neither we ever took uh, venture funding or any debt from any company, any bank, anyone, even individual investors ever. So it was always I uh, or my co-founder who basically put in the money. I don't know if we tried to do this intentionally, whether first time or second time, but what we did right from round one in both the companies, we were focusing on how can we get our first customer? then how can we make that customer successful? Then how can we actually provide them something because of which they are ready to give me some money back? They are ready to pay me rather than some 
free model or anything like that. So we stayed away from freemium model in all the companies, whether it was relationals or whether it was long term. We basically provided a fee based model because of the firm belief that if you are providing a value to a business, they are guaranteed to pay you back and they are guaranteed to ask you for more and then they pay you more. So we were really focused on revenue generation activities. Then because we started to get the revenue back, we started to just work harder, harder through the night, through the day that, okay, how can now we multiply this? And that one success that we have, so we started to go to conferences. So I have realized over the years that there are certain kind of companies that you can really create without taking venture funding. It is not a requirement. Of course, there are companies like Uber and Lyft. I can't see how those companies can be created without taking venture funding. But then there are software as a service company where you are focusing on niche, where, where you really know who is your customer and you can approach that customer in a cost effective way. You can truly create a company which does not require venture funding. I, I firmly believe that it is really possible. Totally. And I completely agree. I think a lot of times it's um, you know, very appealing to be able to say, I raised X dollars and, and you know, see that early signs of success. But at the end of the day, you are giving away a piece of your company. Right. And I think, you know, the longer you can sustain yourself without having to raise financing and just focus on the unit economics to your point and, and you know, just really, be able to get customers in a cost-effective way, the better off and the more sustainable your business will be without having the pressures of, you know, growing 10x, which is not meant for every business in every market. Right? Yeah, and, and even 10x is possible. Uh, take a look at Pega Systems, one of the companies. It's a billion-dollar company, many more, I think, perhaps after they went public, but entirely created through bootstrapping. So, it's not that bootstrap companies can only go to 10 million or 20 million. There are examples here that they have gone to a billion dollar. So that economy of scale is possible. It just depends on how good is your product, what is your focus area, and who are the competitors in that area. So I would definitely say it's possible. For sure. And you touch on a lot of great points. I think an area that a lot of people don't have a great understanding of is what does the exit look like for a software business, especially when going public, perhaps getting acquired by a, you know, a, a true strategic where they kind of take in the product and, and like integrate it heavily within the business when that's no longer an option. Tell me more about how you thought about, you know, your different exit opportunities for the two businesses and how you went about that process. So this is an, a very interesting topic, which is when we were running that company, I honestly didn't think about an exit strategy for five years or even six years. Um, we were really thinking about how am I going to grow the company? How are we going to go from 1 million to 2 million to 5 million. We were really focused on building a revenue base, a strong customer base, 
and set of companies and people who love our product and who are ready to recommend. For example, Relationals and Longchamp, both the companies got acquired together by the same company, Software AG. And uh, we happened to meet them because there was somebody else who was showing an inbound interest. So we just placed a call that because we had some relationships with them. But I would say that an entrepreneur should really focus on building revenue, gaining customers, rather than focusing on an exit strategy. If you focus on those matrices, chances are the exit will automatically come whether you want it or not. Because there is somebody else who is thinking, oh, if they can grow to 5 million through such a small base, using my marketing and my distribution, I can take it to 50 million. So I would say one should not think about exit. One should really think about investing in customers and product. Completely agree. And Going deeper into the comment you had made earlier around trends and you know how you were able to piggyback off of different trends, most recently the no-code movement. Obviously, being an engineer back when you know you were at Indian Oil is very different from being an engineer today, right? All the tools, all the technologies available to an engineer is different. Tell me more about your perspective on the no-code movement and what it means to be an engineer today. The no-code movement, especially the one that is focused on business users or engineers who want to deliver something of value to the business faster, is, has really given an opportunity to both business as well as IT to be able to provide value to a department or a business unit in a way that it can be delivered quickly, it can be quality tested quickly, and it can be deployed into production quickly. If you compare this value that is available through the no-code movement to the era of 2002 or 1998 or that time, if a business wants to get something done, number one, they really can't do anything much unless until they have some Fox Pro and DBase and those or Power Builder I think Power Builder is not possible. They, that required a coder. But Fox Pro or DBase, there were some tools that used to allow business users to do just a little bit of add, update, delete kind of screens. Compare, and so what that meant is, even for an engineer to be able to deliver a value to a business, they needed to write a lot of code. They needed to think about, where am I going to deploy it? Uh, they needed to think about how am I going to package it into an installable that a business unit can really make use of in an easy fashion. Compare that to the no-code movement today that if a business thinks about a business problem and almost all the time a business problem is a process problem. It is a process that they want to streamline, that they want to fix, that they want to run more efficiently. And if it is a process problem, today with platforms like Pulsecream or Appian, and there are several other platforms, you can really accomplish that without, without writing a single line of code, entirely through a browser, and then you can deploy it entirely through a browser and give it to your business, business unit, okay, take a look at it. So 
what used to take three months, five months, or even one year, platforms like Pulsestream or Appian, they are compressing it to the matter of two to three days. And I would say even Salesforce.com is also in exactly in the same category. So this platforms has really given the power to the business units now to bring innovation to the forefront. And if there is somebody who is ready to dream about it now, they are really able to execute it also without even knowing how to write code. That's a big difference. That's a big benefit to businesses to be more efficient, more powerful, more customer focused than any other time. Got it. Specifically around Pulpstream, what role do you see your company playing in the no-code movement? I mean, I, I think there's several tools out there, a lot of different applications for different customer groups. Where do you see Pulpstream fitting into this? So this is a very interesting topic. And uh, all my experiences is based on I creating platforms. Uh, so Relationals, if you see my first uh, product, it was a a, a solution. It was a solution to solve a specific problem, uh, which is customer relationship management problem. When we went with Long Jump, we created a platform. And uh, there was an assumption that we will be able to create a successful marketplace. We realized in Long Jump that creating marketplace is really a heck of a job. It is not easy to create marketplace that you create a platform where you need to bring both buyer as well as seller in a place where they each find valuable things to be able to, so that they are ready to transact. We were able to run long jump successfully and started to focus on some solution. When we exited from long jump, the, all the learnings that were there in long jump, we applied to them. Number one, never create a platform alone unless and until you are a company of the size of salesforce.com. When you create a platform, when, if the buyer comes first, he will say there is no seller. And if the seller comes first, he will say there is no buyer. And that's a problem. Salesforce.com went into the platform business or marketplace business after they had enough buyers and sellers because they were using CRM. So we took that learning from long jump and I applied it to Pulsestream that we are going to create a platform. We are going to create, be part of this no-code movement. But what we are not going to do is like other companies that are present in no-code movement that come and create anything. No, we created a platform with a set of solutions that are production-ready solutions, such as managing claims or managing safety or managing audit processes or managing HR processes. And when we created these solutions, what happened is our buyers, because now we never needed to focus on creating a marketplace. We only needed to find some buyers who would love to have this kind of solutions on a flexible platform like Pulsestream. So we went, reached out to these buyers and these buyers, after they started to use these solutions, they saw the value of the platform and then they started to come to us that, can I have this solution on this platform? Can you solve my consultant billing problem? Can you solve my uh, uh, personal improvement plan problem, which Workday is not solving for me? And that's where they started to come to us. So as an entrepreneur, I would say the key learning was that 
do not try to create a marketplace unless and until you are a billion dollar company. You can even, and there have been companies who are billion dollar companies or more who tried to create marketplace and even then they failed. Focus on solutions, even though underlying you are building a solid platform so that you can create a catalog of solutions on top of it. Got it. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, point well taken on marketplace businesses in general, I think, you know, a very tough area to be in when you need to be responsible for both the demand and supply and having to manage both, right? Because it adds a lot more unpredictability uh, to the entire business and, you know, makes it a lot more vulnerable to ebbs and flows of the overall market or customer group, which, which makes complete sense. My next question is, you know, you've built businesses off of a number of trends or what I call market inflections. You know, move forward a bit and assume that, you know, Pulse Stream is no longer in the picture. If you were to start another business today, what's the trend or market inflection that you would focus on? This is so interesting that talk about the generation, right? Uh, I'm part of that generation who has grown rich and who has personally developed uh, through writing database queries and writing, creating forms and writing SQL and those kind of things. And here is my son. And actually both of my son, one is just an eighth grader and another just joined a startup in Bay Area. And what are they writing? They're not writing database queries. They are not writing forms. They're not even thinking about writing HTML. They are writing algorithms. I mean, they are saying, oh, I'm writing a depth first algorithm to do search through the image, through identify objects. So I'm already seeing that what is that trend? That trend is machine learning. That trend is using data. How can you recognize any, or how can you get any intelligence out of it and then use that intelligence to extrapolate to solve a bigger problem? So in today's time, because I have always loved to write code and I write code every day. Even yesterday I was writing code. I, it is sad to say, but I'm part of an older generation now. I can, I, <laughs> I am saying honestly, because the kind of coding these kids are doing, is just amazing that they are coding on the trend of machine learning, on using data to analyze, to extrapolate and to use imaging and cameras and all those things that are that exist everywhere now. So that's where the opportunity is for the next entrepreneur. Not on this HTML and forms and databases now, because of all this no code movement, these things have become much easier now. If one has to start today, one has to focus on the tools that are available in the marketplace today, which is IoT, which is camera, which is sensors, how can you build a startup or create an idea using these platforms that are available and get the value out of it? So that's the next trend. Awesome. And, and you know, if, if you do ever start another company, we'd love to hear about it because that, <laughs> it, it, it would be interesting to see, uh, see you tackle machine learning. Uh, switching gears a bit, you know, just understanding a bit more about your leadership style. Obviously, we talked a lot about market trends and how a company grows over time, but a big part of this is obviously people management. And I'm curious to know what skill or mindset 
do you have that's most difficult to transfer to the most talented members of your team? Uh, this is a really interesting question that throughout my last, my career of last 26 years, I have come across many highly talented folks. They are from the best institutions in India, Indian Institute of Technology, or they are from the best institutions in America, such as Stanford. One thing that I have found that is tough to replicate and tough to pass from one person to another, whether it is your kid or whether it is your colleague or coworker, whoever it is, is grit. The desire and the fire with which you pursue something, that grit is something that separates an individual or an entrepreneur from somebody who is scoring all A's and who is highly talented. An entrepreneur with grit, even if the person has gotten B's or C's, doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Do you have grit? And if you have a grit, you will be able to succeed in your dream, in your vision, in your entrepreneurship effort. So that is one thing that I have always seen that is tough to transfer because I don't even know if it can be taught. You can taught, teach a person uh, to identify risk, but perhaps you cannot teach a person how to take risk. You cannot teach a person how to build that or how to develop, develop that perseverance to keep going after something, even if you fail five times. I mean, before I got succeeded with my first idea in 2003, and I would call it success only in 2005 when we started making money, I had like three or four ideas that I coded in the night for six years. Those products never saw the light of the day. I could have given up. I used to run uh, servers from my bedroom connected to a DSL machine. And so those were the times. How I could make it happen is because of grit, because of that dream and having that fire. And I don't think that can be transferred from one person to another. If somebody has it, then they will actually spot someone and they can derive inspiration from that person and improve it. But I don't think it can be transferred. Got it. And I, and I think I agree. I think a lot of it is situational and you know, really depends on the environment that you grew up in or perhaps the environment that you put yourself in. Because a lot of times humans, uh, like unless you're forced or feel forced in a specific situation, it's very tough to continue to persevere. Right. And I think, I mean, even in, when we look at your case, it's easy to talk about the three businesses that you've been a part of um, and, and, you know, have been able to be like, see a good chunk of success in, but you know, those six years before that were incredibly painful. And I'm sure, you know, not as many people knew about you, right. You, you don't have all the positives that you've earned over the past, you know, 20, 25 years. Right. And, and I think that's, that's definitely a, a great point. Uh, one last question that I wanted to ask you, and I know we had spoke about this during our initial conversation, is your philanthrop philanthropic efforts. I think, you know, not only have you managed to build businesses and be successful in that realm, but you're also passionate about giving back to the community. Tell me more about that. It was always in the back of my mind that I want to do something 
and give back to community. Now, I came into contact with a foundation in India, which is focused on empowering women and empowering young girls by teaching them about everything that they, in many cases, they are deprived of in villages or in rural areas. So uh, I have become a part, I've become part of a foundation called Anubhuti. And this foundation is working in several rural parts of central India, working towards empowering girls and women. At certain point of time in life, one starts thinking that, well, I have grit. I have perseverance. I can be successful if I decide to do that. Where else I can apply that grit, that, F, that dreaming, uh, the desire to dream and succeed? And I thought one way to apply that is working with a set of people who are trying to do something similar, not in software, but in community development. So I had a wonderful opportunity to join hands with them and be part of that movement. Going further in future, I want to be part of many organizations like this. I want to continue to support them both financially as well as by providing them whatever expertise I have gained over this period of time. So that is something I'm trying to do. I want to keep doing this and improve on it. I think I'm just beginning in those areas. So there is a long way for me to go. But uh, I'm really happy that I've been able to connect with some wonderful people in that area. Awesome. And, you know, very inspiring to hear the different transitions you've been able to make over the past several years. And again, really looking forward to seeing where you're able to go, both with Pulpstream as well as, you know, a, a lot of the nonprofit efforts. Obviously, you know, those are very it, those are incredible causes to support and, and, you know, now more than ever before, I think very timely uh, as well. So uh, definitely appreciative of all the work that you're doing on that front, in addition to being able to build incredibly solid uh, businesses across different markets and times. So with that, uh, Pankaj, thank you for coming on today. Uh, you know, definitely a lot of great insights that I, I think a lot of our audience and subscribers will enjoy. And with that, look forward to staying in touch. Uh, so then thank you very much for the opportunity. And this is how I would like to conclude that if any one of your listeners have an idea, would like me to help them validate the idea or just to provide them any assistance so that they can be successful in their venture, I would love to give my time, whatever is needed to be part of, uh, to, to help them succeed with their dream. So to your listeners, keep dreaming. You can be successful. Just need to try harder and don't be afraid of failing because failure happens. But after that, success will come. Just keep trying. Keep doing the right thing and you will be successful. Awesome. Thank you so Thank much, Fankash. All right. See you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Vertical Software Podcast. Make sure to rate and subscribe our show to stay up to date on future episodes of the Vertical Software Podcast. Thanks again and talk to you next week.